John 21, we're at the final chapter in the Gospel of John. In this text that our elder Jonathan just read for us, we see that Jesus feeds His sheep. Jesus feeds His sheep, and as we're going to note next week, Jesus commissions in love the feeding of His sheep by these sheep that He feeds with this literal meal right now. My hope for us in this text is that we would grow a greater love for the Lord, that He would see how attentive and kind is the chief shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. We would see that the chief shepherd, he knows where his sheep are, wherever they are. Even if they're out fishing at night, even if they're in a season of waiting, he knows exactly where they are and he knows where to find them and he knows how to engage them with the right words at the right time, words that reveal the heart. And he knows likewise, as we'll see next week, how to commission them. My hope for us if, as believers is that we would be stirred to be fishers of men. Fishers of men, wise in the words that we speak. That the Lord would bring each of us to meet the immediate needs and point people to the one who can meet the eternal needs of everyone. This is the good news that we partake of this morning. That Jesus, He pursued His sheep, engaging them where they were. Notice with me in the first four verses. Jesus pursued His sheep, engaging them where they were. Now, the disciples were where they were supposed to be. We know in Matthew 28 that part of the word that Jesus gave to Mary to deliver on to the disciples is that they would wait in Galilee. Waiting in Galilee. That sounds like a great book title. Waiting in Galilee. That's a large area. That'd be kind of like saying, hey, wait in deep east Texas and I'll find you in a little while. Uh, with no technology, with no cell phones, with those things, that sounds, that would be kind of a little stressful for me. I mean, just imagine that. But Jesus' disciples are doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're in Galilee, but Peter is moved to go fishing. We don't know why he's moved to go fishing. We don't know the exact motives. Maybe he just wanted to get back to doing what he had learned to do professionally, to go out and to fish like he did with James and John. I don't know, maybe they were just hungry and they wanted to go out and eat. Whatever it was, they were stirred in such a way to, to go and to risk their lives. You remember last week we looked and we saw the state of the disciples? Uh, they were fearful. They were gathered together for they saw what the Jewish authorities had done to the Messiah, Jesus. They crucified Him. And so they gathered in fear before Jesus came into their presence and they were filled with faith and joy and worship in Christ. But the threat still remains. Very well, possibly, if they are found, they could be executed. And so I don't know about you, like, I, I like to fish. I don't love to fish. I like to fish. I'll go fishing with you if you invite me. Subliminal message. Not subliminal at all. I'll probably go with you if you invite me. But if you've been fishing for any time, you have probably gone fishing and caught nothing. Okay? That's a reality. That happens from time to time. But a saying exists for fishermen who catch nothing. And it sounds like this, even a bad day on the water is better than what? A good day in the office, okay? So you can fill in the blank there. And the one or two people that said that, that's our bad fishermen in our congregation. Did you hear them? I use the same saying. I use that all the time. There's tons of sayings that we can do like that. Well, at least we had a good time, right? You can just kind of, we just kind of lick our wounds in different ways when we strike out in fishing. But I tell you what, I've never wanted to fish so bad that if I would have got caught by the warden, I would be executed. That's never, I've never met a fisherman that wanted to fish that bad, but that's what is possibly 
on the schedule for the disciples if they get caught by the Jewish authorities. So it seems to be Peter's idea to go fishing, and the rest of the disciples tag along with him. So this type of fishing, this net fishing, it takes a a lot of strength, and it's, of course, much better in groups. And so they tag along with him, and they go out fishing. Fishing is not easy work in this time. They toil all night, the Scriptures say. These men fished to the point of exhaustion. Certainly they were hungry. They didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. They certainly imagined, I'd imagine by the end of the night, trained professional fishermen. They was surely thought they would have caught something, and yet we're told by the text that they caught nothing. Upon the shore is Jesus. The last time that we saw Jesus near the water was in John chapter 6. Do you remember how Jesus met his disciples when they were on the water in John chapter 6? He walked on the water right out to see him. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Jesus stays back upon the shore, and imagine fishing probably by moonlight, and he watches his disciples. He knows their situation. He knows that they have labored in vain. They've caught nothing. And I wonder how long he watched them. For us, it would be confounding to think, how would you go about finding somebody in that situation? But Jesus knows exactly where his disciples are. Listen, just like he knew where Thomas's heart was, even though he rose from the dead and Jesus wasn't bodily in the room, he, know, he knew that Thomas had doubts. And the claim of, of an act of not believing that, that Thomas gave, Jesus knew those things. Thomas knew Jesus knew where Thomas's heart was, even though he wasn't in the room. And Jesus, likewise, he knows the whereabouts of his disciples, even though it's the dead of night. And so there he is on the shore, and he sees his disciples. Have you ever loved someone enough to just take a moment and watch them? Family member, a friend, a grandparent, a grandchild? Just stop for a moment and just observe them, to watch them. This good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, he watches, observes them for a moment. In this season of waiting, the disciples are where they're supposed to be. And in this account that seems rather minuscule, of course, we'll see a larger purpose connected to the conversation that they have at the fireside chat and the larger purpose for this commissioning that's going to take place. This account that's given, some of the details that are given, 153 fish, they seem rather obscure, but I would argue this season of waiting as they're waiting in Galilee is filled with purpose. What about you, your season of waiting? Do you find yourself this morning gathered in a season where life isn't quite where you want it to be, when you want it to be? Waiting. Waiting. Scripture is filled with seasons of waiting whether it's the 25 years, even though some details are given in there, certainly, but whether it's the 25 years in which Abram and, and Sarai waited for the blessing of their son. Whether it's the 430 years that the Israelites would ultimately wait to come into the land while they were in Egypt. Whether it was the 400 years from Malachi to John the Baptist. 
whether it was even for Jesus' life. And Luke 2.52 is one of the few things we have of Jesus' first 30 years of life before he begins his ministry. It says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And that's about it, waiting. Or the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, we're told that for 14 years, there was 14 years between his first missionary journey and his second missionary journey. It says in Galatians 2, before the Lord prompted him to go up to Jerusalem and launch out again. Now, certainly he wasn't idle. Certainly he was abiding in the word and way of God. He was training up churches, certainly. But it was still a season of waiting before that second great calling and that missionary journey. It's important for us to recognize, even though the disciples didn't know when their next meal would come, Jesus knew the whole time. He knew every one of those 153 fish by name. He knew them all. And you might be in the same way. Whatever anxiety you find choking out your heart and your mind, Jesus knows. And Jesus knows how He will meet your immediate needs. And even in greater ways, we'll see shortly, He knows and he, that He is the one to meet our eternal needs in fellowshipping with God. Waiting in Galilee. Waiting in Galilee. How does it meet you this morning to know the Lord knows exactly where you are? Not simply geographically. We can tell that by the app on your phones, right? We can't. We're not tracking you. That sounds weird. We're not tracking you through your phones. Somebody might be, but we're not, Okay. But the Lord knows your heart, even if the person beside you does not know. The Lord knows exactly where you are, and He knows exactly how to engage you. We see this in verse 5 and how He engages with His disciples. So Jesus knows where they are. He pursues them, meeting them where they are. And Jesus engaged His sheep with the right questions in verse 5. Jesus said to them, He asked a single question here. It's plural because we're going to note three different ways, at least three ways that Jesus uses questions that we as fishers of men can learn from. Jesus said to them from the shoreline, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, I wonder if they whispered it like, no, humbly, no, we don't have any fish. How did Jesus use questions? In this first same way, Jesus used questions to shine light upon the truth of one's present circumstances. All through his ministry, this is what he did. His questions shone light upon one's present circumstances. This seems obvious. The, the disciples did not learn anything by Jesus' question, did they? They knew they fished all night and they could pull their nets up at any time and see and feel, no, no, no fish. In Jesus' question, they didn't all of a sudden think like, oh, we thought we had just the most amount of fish ever. They knew their situation, but Jesus asked a question, and it brings about a realization of their honest, direct circumstances. In Missouri, since I was about 11 or 12 years old, my dad, we would go fishing in this Bennett Spring outing, a wonderful place to fish. And we go trout fishing, and it was a group of 50 to 70 guys. I was the youngest one by at least four or five decades every time. But we would go in this annual fishing retreat, and it's trout fishing. You're in waders, and so you got your stringer that's connected to you. So you can clearly see when somebody's walking, do they have any fish or not? And what we would do, which would, I would be asked regularly, especially if I didn't have any fish, you'd be asked, hey, how'd you do? And obviously, your empty stringer communicates, I did not do well. I don't have any fish, kind of as a joking 
humbling way to ask somebody, just picking on each other. Jesus asked this question not to bring about to the disciples a, a, a realization of, oh, we didn't know this, but it's a realization of their circumstances. Why would he do that? We'll see a second reason in just a moment. But as believers, why do we need to have a constant realization of our circumstances? Because flattery works. Flattery is powerful. Even from back in the garden, what did the serpent tempt Adam and Eve with? Eat of it and you shall be like God. What flattery. What flattery. Paul warns Timothy to warn the churches that in later times, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, people will acquire for themselves teachers who will not teach sound doctrine, but will itch their ears. And so as believers, we need a regular reminder, this is God-man Christ, a regular reminder of the biblical gospel to, to, to remind us of who we are and whose we are and what He's done for us and what He's commissioned us to do. We constantly need to be reminded of the gospel message and to remind each other of the gospel message and to spend time in His Word that cuts through our hearts. That's good news for us, church body. As a part of our congregation, you have people in your life, we pray that love us enough to ask the hard questions, the, hey, how's that working out for you type question. Because we can get by for a little bit. I mean, we could put a little makeup on and get by and cover something up for a little bit, but eventually it shows. If you've got a, a, a sore on your foot, you can walk with it for a little while, but eventually it will start to break you down and you'll start to have a noticeable limp. As believers in Christ, if we're not abiding in the way of God, if we're not abiding in the purposes of God to, to, to know Jesus, to make Him known, to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God, if we're not having that as our primary goal and purpose, as we rest in the finished work of Christ, we'll find ourselves with empty nets. We'll be like the disciples who find ourselves toiling and exhausted in empty nets. Maybe we meet all the goals and celebration standards of this world, the promotions and the achievements and the relationships, but in reality, if we are not doing and being who God has called us to be, not simply fishers of fish, but fishers of men, in our respective areas and seasons of life. Praise God for people that love us enough to come alongside and say, but how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? So Jesus asked questions to shine light upon the truth of one's present circumstances. And secondly, with this same question, we'll note that His questions brought to memory one's prior spiritual commitments. Look over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. You're going to want to turn there for this one. Luke chapter 5. We're going to read verse 5 through 11. His question doesn't simply bring an awareness of the disciples' circumstances that they've caught nothing, but it also would bring to memory a prior circumstance. When Jesus first met Peter and James and John, the scene that we just read in this Miraculous catching of the fish is very similar to what we read about in Luke chapter 5. Remember, these are 
trained and professional fishermen. The crowd is encroaching. Jesus gets in the boat, asks him to put out a little bit so that he can preach and teach to the crowds. And then after doing so, he says, hey, put the boat out further. Go out a little bit deeper. So they go out a little bit deeper and they cast the nets. And here's what we see. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 5 through 11. This is their first, the first date. We'll call it the first date. Luke chapter 5, verse 5 through 11. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. That sound familiar? When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and they followed Jesus. Jesus asked a question. Y'all got any fish in there? No. They fished all night and they had nothing to show. That question, I imagine, would have brought back to mind the first date in which they had nothing to show for their labor. And they hear the words that Jesus gives and the instruction that Jesus gives, and just like in the first case, they catch so many fish that it leaves them astonished. John will give us the number. Luke does not. However many it was, in that case, it was enough where everybody was so moved, and Peter was so moved, it brought him to repentance, confession of sin, and a reliance upon Christ. How about you? Where are you at with the Lord? As you think back through your life, was there a time in which you found yourself just really abiding in the way and Word of God? And you look down today and you think in reflection of that, as you think back to that time, I think baptism functions in this way for us as well. We saw Haley's baptism last week in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter is going to be the book we're going to walk in next after we finish John. And in 1 Peter 3, I think there's an allusion here to, uh, to how he uses it of baptism, being this appeal to God for a good conscience for the rest of our life that we live. So we're raised to walk a newness of life with the Lord, and when we're not doing so, it's a reminder to that profession that we made to abide in Christ and the newness of life we have in Him as we've been united with Him in His life and death and resurrection. Do you know people in your life that, as you think about Previously, they had a commitment to the Lord that doesn't seem to be there today. They expressed a love and devotion and a care for the way of the Lord and the word of the Lord and the people of the Lord and and the Lord Jesus himself, and yet those affections are not there today. And if so, would you pray for the courage to talk to those people, to pursue them? And to ask them revealing questions. And here's why I say it's a revealing question. Because I think most people drift out. And don't realize actually what they believe today. 
I think a lot of people that grew up in church context or maybe got connected in college or the most prime time, one of the most prime times did you know that people get connected to local churches is actually when they have kids for the first time. Why? If you've had kids, you know, help! <laughs> Anybody can help me with this? But maybe that season has drifted. You know, one of the main times that people get disengaged from church is when they move. Nacogdoches is a pretty transient community. So you could have people that were active in, the, in their faith and abiding in the way and word of the Lord, and yet they moved here, and after three weeks it became a habit not to be connected to a church. Maybe they church shopped for a while, and then a while became a long time. And then before you know it, there's no vibrancy and love of the Lord. There's no active abiding and submission to the way of God. There's a distance there. They've drifted unknowingly. And they've begun to believe things by the preachers that they listen to, that they hear either through social media or through the news or through the radio. And their hearts have drifted to other loves, lesser loves. And they're just waiting for a believer in love to come alongside them. This could be a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a family member to, to get a meal together, to spend some time together and just say, look, can I ask you a question? You said you used to go to church. You said you used to read the Bible regularly. What happened? To ask questions about present tense. What do you believe about the Lord? Do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe God's Word is the final authority for all things in practice and in belief? And if not, by what standard, by whose standard do you live today? And what we find more often than not as a person is in a position where they've drifted so far as they answer those questions, they begin to realize they're making a counter-profession of faith. Or they're so jarred by the realization of what's happened because they've never thought about it, they've just drifted that the Lord uses it to bring them back to revival and a recommitment to the ways of the Lord, abiding and resting in His finished work. That's what God calls us to do as believers. That's what Jesus does with this question. It brings back to mind both the reality of their circumstances and a reality of the promise that Jesus gave them, not to be great fishers of fish, but to become fishers of men. That commissioning was going to happen for them very soon. But let's look first, or third, I should say, at a third way in which Jesus used questions. And it's not really identified here in his question, but there's a lot of different passages we could look at. Jesus, as the master, he's the master question asker. He did a third purpose with his questions. We see it in several places in Scripture. His questions got to the heart, thirdly, of the matter by moving from the general conversation to a point of personal response. So Jesus is the master of taking general conversation pieces, general issues in the news, newsworthy stories, he takes them and he doesn't let it stay here in the general where it's comfortable. He takes it and he makes it personal. Let me give you two examples. One is in Matthew chapter 16. I'll read it for you, just one verse. In that case, he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He asks his disciples. And his disciples give a survey of answers. Some say Elijah. Right? And they, they give this survey of answers. But Jesus doesn't stop there. What does Jesus do? He looks at his disciples and asks them, but who do you say I am? 
But he doesn't let it stay in the general. He brings it to the personal. And then Peter, of course, there gives that great profession of which our faith is built. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus affirms him. Blessed are you, Simon Peter. Right? For this has been revealed to you from heaven. Then right after that, he then tries to deny Jesus. But it's the profession of faith that's made. But Jesus takes the general. Who do they say? So this could be the very simple question. What are they talking about on the news? That's an easy place to talk about, isn't it? Kind of easy. It can get heated quick, can it? You're all kind of smiling. But some of you look like you're in a coma. So wake up. Here we go. What would happen if I asked you what's going on in the news? Politics, right? COVID, right? Lots of problems. Things that we can talk about and have an opinion on, and we could even fight over our opinions. But our opinions stay general, don't they? We might ask the general topic, what do you believe about this? But Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And one of the great questions we can ask as believers is, who do you say Jesus is? Not simply, who did you say, but who do you believe Jesus is? It's a gift of a question to make. Let me give you one more example. Look to Luke 13. Flip in your Bibles to Luke 13. Jesus did this not only with His disciples, but He did this with the crowds. Many of whom were faithful Jews who had not yet committed their lives to Christ. They've not pledged their allegiance to Him. They watched... They observed, many followed in crowds, but they had not yet committed to him. He addresses the crowd. In Luke chapter 13, look at verse 1. He takes things that are the most moral, political, and offensive of topics that would have galvanized, it would have, it would have gathered together all of the Jewish thinkers, the Sadducees who toward the left on certain issues of the resurrection, the Pharisees on the right, the, uh, the Essenes, the, the folks that lived in the rural areas, and the zealots, the political leaders that wanted to overthrow things by the sword. He takes this topic and watch what Jesus does with it. This is unreal. Look at Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So they're sacrificing, and Pilate comes in and kills them. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And Jesus offers up another tragedy. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repenting, a turning away of worldly allegiances. A confession of missing the mark, a turning and trusting in Christ. Jesus takes their observations of a situation that would be like their 9-11, a unifying factor of a tragedy that took place, a man-made tragedy on one case by the government, and then on the other case, this tower that seemed to randomly fall as a tragedy and kill 18 people. Jesus takes it. 
He says, does that, does that seem unjust to you? There is a judge. The recognition of injustice or tragedy is a recognition that there is a righteous judge. And Jesus is that judge. And the recognition of injustice doesn't let it stay as coffee table discussion or a random post. Jesus takes it and moves it to the, the personal with them. You believe there's injustice? Well, are you sinless? Are you better than they? You repent. You repent. And Jesus points to this greatest need in this revealing of questions. And so we, we pray likewise in our own culture, in our own context. We pray for President Trump to be, to be healed in this COVID. We pray for all the tragedies of those sick and COVID and all the hurts and heartaches of life that our culture right now is facing. But we also pray for wisdom and sensitivity and boldness, as we'll see thirdly, to meet needs, to recognize needs, and to long to meet immediate and eternal needs. Jesus meets the disciples' immediate need, and He reminds them of their greatest need, which is fellowship with God. He gives it to them. He recognizes their immediate needs and their eternal needs. And He meets them. Now, Peter is moved when John recognizes, I think the memory flashes in his mind of, whoa, that's Jesus. It doesn't seem like he sees him clearly. It's not that it's getting brighter and he puts it together. But I think it brought back the memory as they're, the fish, they've got so many fish, it brings back to memory exactly what happened. Night of fishing, zero fish, because that probably wouldn't happen too often, but zero fish, and then so many fish, our, our, our nets were breaking. And, and now here we are again, no fish, and we've caught an astounding amount of fish. That's Jesus. Peter hears it. Jumps in the water, throws off his outer garments, swims after Jesus. Jesus has got a fire going for him. He's going to meet his immediate need. And we'll see next week that Peter's fate, he's going to experience decades of ministry. And Jesus tells him those decades of ministry will end on his own cross. It's his arms will be stretched out. And he too will taste death by crucifixion. But before that time comes... Peter's hungry. The disciples are hungry. They got fish to eat. And Jesus meets their immediate needs. As believers, we have to slow down enough to perceive the immediate needs of those around us. And so I would ask you this week, as you think about it right now, just imagine right now you're going home. What are things that you maybe drive by or think through in your neighborhood? People that are your sweet mates or your teammates, or friends, or family, or co-workers, or neighbors? What are needs, perceived needs that could be there, but we get tunnel vision and we don't slow down to perceive the immediate needs? Now, this won't be the only meal. The disciples will need to eat meals for all, of course, all the rest of their life. These 153 fish aren't going to be self-sustaining like the woman who's blessed with the oil in the Old Testament that continues to be filled. This isn't one fish and you're good to go forever. This is just a little immediate need.
We good? Oh, we're good? I left my battery on for the whole time between the first and second service. That's on me. That's not on our team. But hey, can we give Roberto and Drew a hand? They do a great job back there. Mm. They do a great job. Our sound team does a tremendous, tremendous job if I don't mess it up. Okay, that's the key. But here's what we see. 153 fish. 153 fish. Jesus met their immediate needs. Would you pray today and make it a very simple prayer, perhaps as a normal basis, just like when you come to church, if you come flustered, sit in your car for a moment and just pray. Give your anxieties to the Lord and calm yourself before you come in. And when we leave, maybe just to practice, God, would you help to show me immediate needs that maybe I can meet, my family can meet, my small group can meet, my church family can help meet. 153 fish. Why is there 153 fish? I don't know. Through church history, different people have made guesses at, or estimates. And maybe these 153 represents this or that. I, I don't think it represents anything significant besides the fact that fishermen usually know exactly how many fish they catch if they have a record-keeping day. Luke didn't give us a number, but John does give us a number. He gives us a number. And the number would have performed the purpose of exactly what Luke hit at. Without giving us the number, all the people were astounded. They were astonished at what took place. 153 fish. And this is also just another one of the countless evidences that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. This is real people. This is real fishermen that wanted to remember exactly the faithfulness of God on their night of no fishing and 153 fish. So to show this out, most, most fishermen and fisherwomen know their best day on the water. And to, to prove this out, I, I text four of our fishermen at Grace. I just ask them a question. What was your biggest fish you've ever caught and or the most fish you've ever caught. And I heard back from all four fishermen, the quickest I've ever heard back from any group of people I've ever solicited. Within an hour, everybody texted me, and here's what they said. Rob, he said, my largest fish was a Chinook King Salmon, 62 pounds. Not 60 pounds, every, every pound counts, right? 62 pounds. Numbers-wise... I caught 75 speckled trout in the ocean bay in a single day. Fishermen usually count with precision because it's history. From Brian, my largest fish would be a, a sturgeon coming in at 60 inches and 50 pounds. And the most fish in a day that he and Michelle counted at Lake Shasta in California, which might be a great vacation area when you hear this, was just over 300 fish together in a single day. I don't think they used dynamite. I think they were still using rods. From Russell, he caught several sharks that measured five foot easy, and I love this. Uh, there's days I simply lost count, but you could put the number at 50, and that would not be exaggerating enough to, to make me a liar to the church. So, here we go. And then Andy, he caught a nine-pound bass, and then one day he caught 15 bass, and for crappie, he caught 75. I'm pointing out then that this 153 is not simply random, it is history. And it's a testament to God's faithfulness. The men worked with all their strength, and they caught nothing. And then they heard and abided in the instruction of the Lord, and they worked with all their strength and struggled to pull in the fish. What a word of wisdom for us today, beloved. Even if you're in a season of waiting, abide in the way and word of God. 
Colossians 3 says it like this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with Him in glory. And put off then, and He gives this list that ought not mark the believer's life. The one who taught them to be fishers of men and would soon commission them to do so, He loves them. Beloved, you need to be reminded this morning that He loves you. Not for what He can use you for. Not because He needs you. Think about this scene. 153 fish, they were created through Christ and for Christ. And in them, they maintain their being. They're His. What about the disciples? He made them. They're His. What about the instruction on where to catch the fish? Those were His. But what did Jesus do? He made a fire. He asked them to bring the fish that they caught. And He shared a meal with them. Because He loves us. And the greatest thing that God can give you is relationship with Himself. And in love, He fellowships with His disciples around this fire. Peter has not yet been restored from his thrice denial. We'll look at that later on in this scene next week. He loves them and wants to be with them, sitting across from them face to face. That's how good our God is. If you ask somebody what their immediate need is, they may be able to tell you, but most people, if you ask them what their eternal need is, you'll get a number of questions, a number of answers. And to some extent, it might be like somebody in a car accident that comes into the, walks into the ER and says, I got a problem, and they got a broken finger, and in reality, their artery is cut. This is my problem, and in reality, this is the problem. And that's much of our culture today. That's much of the world today. I've got a problem. In reality, they don't have union with God by faith in Christ. And so, yes, we want to be moved as believers to help to meet these needs. But our commissioning and calling that God gives us is to meet this need. Which is living as faithful witnesses of the good news of Christ Jesus. The sinless Son of God. The eternally begotten Son who came and took on flesh and lived among us. Lived a sinless life sent from the Father. He did all the works that were prepared to advance to do. He fulfilled all the Scriptures and He laid His life down as a make-right sacrifice on the cross, earning for us forgiveness. By His wounds we are healed. And by faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again, we can be made well from death to life. And He loves us enough to bring us into the ministry of being and making disciples for the glory of God for however many days we have. That is a good news for us. Isn't that good news? He loves you and desires fellowship with you. What a gift. What a gift. Next steps. Question number one, who am I pursuing? I don't mean to ask that for a point of conviction, but a simple point of realization. Who am I pursuing? And as believers, as Jesus would make the disciples fishers of men, we ought to also be of the business of actively fishing. 
saying, God, would you help me to pursue people? We, we prayed last week. We made it a next step next, last week. Oh, Lord, would you give me a, a, willing, a willingness to, to speak of you as I go out? So, so a question, who am I pursuing? Would you open your eyes and think through and jog your memory even right now in this moment? God, who is somebody you can bring into my life or you've already brought into my life that I can pursue? And pray for boldness to, to serve them and to meet immediate needs and to point them to the eternal need that the Lord has met for me in Christ and can meet for them. Number two, do I know their immediate need in an eternal situation? It's a great question. It's not just knowing facts about them, but a longing and intentionality to know them enough to, to know and to listen and to see immediate needs and by God's grace, eternal needs. And as we pray about those, would you likewise say, God, would you, would you give me a boldness and a willingness to try to meet those immediate needs and a courage to point them to you who can meet their eternal need and give me a wisdom of time that I can walk with them and what it means to abide in fellowship with Christ. And finally, all this leads us to a point of rejoicing. He is our great shepherd. How great are you that the Lord pursued you? How great are you that while you were yet an enemy of the Lord, Christ died for you? What gratefulness should mark our lives as believers, a joy and a hope that is unlike this world. Gratefulness. Thank you, Jesus. Let me pray for us before we stand and worship the King in song. Well, Father God, we thank you for the time to gather this morning. This is a beautiful day that you have made, and so we rejoice and we are glad in it. And Father, we thank you for sending the Son. Jesus, we thank you that you who were faithful to do all the work, you rose from the dead, the power of the Spirit, that you would find this time as the disciples are waiting to fellowship with them that we have fellowship with you. We thank you for sending the Holy Spirit. And Spirit of God, we thank you for indwelling us. As you go out and do the work of Christ and testify of Christ in us and in other believers all throughout the world, we ask for boldness and wisdom. We pray for the health of President Trump and all those that are impacted by COVID. So much in our world today, Lord, is marked by hurt and pain, and things not being the way that they ought to be. And so, God, we pray that you would meet eternal needs and immediate needs. That you would give us the boldness and wisdom to see and to listen to the people around us, God. That we would be marked and walk with the hope that we have in Jesus. Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you. We truly believe there is no greater aim. So mark our lives and mark our prayer this week. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together, amen. Would you stand with me, church family?